That's no bother, brother. That'd be a good reminder for us. <laughs> Thought about straightening that up for Reagan because I knew that was driving her crazy. Just kidding. Um, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 11 again. Um, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in verse 21. We're going to work our way down, Lord willing, to verse 23. And then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 12, as you can see on the screen there. And we're going to look at verses 31 and 32 there. So you may want to uh, find those verses as well and maybe mark your place or something. Because we'll turn to it quickly when we get there. Um, while you're doing all that, let me say, maybe forewarn you, I should say that there's nothing easy about any of these verses that we're going to look at today. Uh, they tend to be eschatologically challenging. What in the world does that mean? Well, in the context that I'm using it, I mean um, they challenge notions we have about the uh, timing and effect of God's kingdom. Um, in addition to that, they, uh, they have the tendency to uh, make us challenge or uh, to challenge us on uh, the sufficiency of our own commitment to Christ. And probably the, the most daunting of those things is uh, the verse, some of these verses we're going to look at have made many question the security of their own souls. And I don't, I know that's a lot to say, but I don't think that's overstating the case when it comes to these verses even. Um, they're very serious and, and they warrant very serious consideration from us. Um, and by the grace of God, we're going to try to do that this morning. But we're going to need His help. Amen. We need a touch from the finger of God, right? From last week, uh, we're going to need meaning that we need uh, power from the Spirit of God if we're going to be able to understand these verses and respond to them appropriately. All right. Well, acknowledging that, then let's let's read our text and we'll go to Him in prayer and ask Him for that touch. Uh, the first is Luke chapter eleven, beginning in verse twenty-one. Um, this is the inspired word of God. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Then Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 31, again the word of God. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, or will be, yes, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word uh, that we've just read, the word that you've given us. Thank you for your kindness and goodness in delivering it to us, for preserving it 
for us and in giving us access to it in our own native language. Lord, we praise you for that. Please look upon us now. Give us power. Give us ability. Pour out your Spirit upon us that we might understand uh, these words and what they reveal to us about uh, you, your kingdom, about Christ, his power and authority, about the way we should respond to that appropriately. Please help us, Lord. We're at your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you're still in Matthew, uh, turn back to uh, Luke chapter 11, please. Um, and remember as you're turning, uh, we didn't have time to reread all of that, um, but verse 21 is simply um, uh, continuing that event that we began looking at last week. So I think even though we don't have time to read it, it's worth taking just a moment to review what we saw. It had begun uh, back up in verse 14 with Jesus casting a demon out of a man that had rendered the man mute, unable to speak, and uh, apparently even blind. Um, and if you remember, we saw that Jesus or that Luke had recorded three res or uh, three responses to that miracle from the people, um, and and it's. Primarily, it would appear that it's to the second of those responses there in verse 15. Look at it with me. Um, that Jesus was responding or that Jesus began to be responding in what we looked at yesterday. It was this, it was this response, verse 15. But some of them, remember Matthew and Mark uh, identified that some as the scribes and Pharisees respectively. Uh, some of them said... In response to that, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, right? Remember, my premise was that they, they were implying that Jesus had been granted his authority from Satan rather than from God the Father, right? That Jesus had been given the power that he was exercising from Beelzebul, or by another name for Satan, rather than by God the Holy Spirit. Remember all that. And then remember in verses 17 through 19, you can just peruse them. We won't read them. But remember how Jesus had used logic to show them how irrational and absurd these ideas, these responses were that they were having. Right? He, he told them essentially, as we saw in, in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 23, how can Satan cast out himself? Right? How can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't even make any sense. Right? That's incoherent irrational babble, right? Um, we made a lot of emphasis on that. Then in verse 19, you can look at it again. Uh, he had told them this as well. He said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons, your followers, cast them out? Meaning what? What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? If that's the case for me, then what does that say about your disciples, about your followers, about your exorcists. And memory had said at the end of verse 19, therefore, as a result of this, they will be your judges. And my premise in that was that he's saying this logical inconsistency that you've applied here in indicting me is actually going to turn and indict you on the day of judgment. Right, hopefully you can remember all that. Then, after he'd torn apart their belief system and shown it to be the the, the fraudulent folly that it was, 
he, he began to tell them uh, in verse 20 what the reality of the situation was before them, the reality of what they were seeing and observing in his exorcisms. And he'd said this, but, in contrast to their ideas, if it is by the finger of God, or the Spirit of God, Matthew says, that I cast out demons, then that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? Has taken you by surprise. And that's where we stopped last week. And as far as I can tell, um, what Jesus is doing in the next two verses is just continuing that response. He's, he's expounding upon it, if you will, upon that initial explanation of verse 20. So what that means for us, and it's important we understand that, because isolating these verses, people have come up with some weird <laughs> strange, errant ideas from them. The underlying thing then going into verse 21 is the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. You following with me? Maybe not. A few of you are. Okay. Hopefully I can catch up if you're not. Look at verse 21. I don't have time to stall too much. Um, and remember the context as we read it, okay? Jesus goes on, continues on, and says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Okay, remember the setting. Okay? They're, they're, the question that they're asking is, how has Jesus been able to dispel these demons the way that he has? Okay, that's what they're pondering. So again, like he had done in verse 17, Jesus uses an analogy to illustrate his point, right? Think about the analogy and try not to think ahead to what it represents yet. Just think about the analogy as it stands. Okay, the subject here is a strong man. The, the word can mean a, a powerful man, a man with a lot of might and capability. Okay, and he's described as being fully armed, the connotation there, from what I read, would mean from head to toe. Like, you, like they would have expected a, a, a Roman soldier to be equipped for battle um, who, had, who, had, who didn't have to worry about the expense of his armor, right? He's, he's, he's fully equipped, head to toe. It's the analogy, Jesus said he's, he's guarding his own palace. What's that? That's the, that's the seat of his power, Right? The, the seed of his authority, the, the, the seed of his kingdom. Okay? Think about it. These are national political uh, metaphors here. And it says that he's keeping his goods safe. Now, think it, so tie all that together. This, this, this strong, powerful, capable man, he's using that strength, he's using that armor, he's, he, and he's being vigilant to keep what belongs to him. Firm, that what's in his palace firmly under his control, right? Think about that scenario, right? Is naturally speaking, okay? Is anyone likely to make off with this man's property? <laughs> no, right? Like he's well fortified, right? This is Fort Knox, so to speak. Um, his goods are very safe. Now, to interpret the symbols, I think it's pretty obvious. Who's represented here by the strong man? Not yet. <laughs> I figured that would happen. Sorry to bait you in. It's Satan. It's Beelzebul. It's the prince of the demons. 
the ruler of, remember they had said, you cast out demons by the ruler, the prince of the demons. Okay? You'll see why, why I go there, brother. Now, if that's the case, bear with me. Give, me. give me some grace there for a second. What's being represented by the goods here that are in the, the dark prince's palace, if you will? It's people, right? It's image bearers of God who are enslaved to this prince in various ways. Uh, consider this explanation from William MacDonald. He, this is important. He says, up until now, Satan was a strong man, fully armed, who held undisputed sway over his court. He says, those who were possessed by demons were kept in his grip, and there was no one to challenge him. His goods were in peace, that is, no one had the power to dispute his sway. See, up until now. <laughs> up until when? Up until the incarnation, right? Up until God became a man. Up until God entered into the realm of men, right? Up until the incarnate God, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, was anointed by the Holy Spirit, think last week, and, and began his messianic conquest, right? Up until that point. But see, when that happened, everything started to change. Everything that had been on course since the fall of Adam, it began to change. And see, what we're supposed to see in Jesus' exorcisms is proof that that change was already happening, right? That change was already beginning, and, and its fullness, its finality was inevitable, right? It was inevitable. It's coming. All right, back to the analogy. So try to think back to, to just the natural analogy. He continues it in verse 22. He says, but, so the strong man, he's well fortified, he's protecting his goods, they're safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him, this isn't defensive, this is offensive movement. When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes, overtakes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. Now, see the imagery in that, right? This well-fortified palace, this Fort Knox of the strong man, it's now being attacked by a stronger man, Amen. right? To, to, to think in terms of the analogy, this, this, strong, this, this man attacking the strong man's palace, he's got better armor. Right? He's got better weaponry. Right? His battle plan's better. The army that supports him, that's under his command, is superior. Right? But what's the most important thing? He himself has more authority. He himself wields more power. Right? Now... Now, who does this stronger man represent? <laughs> right, this is King Jesus, right? This is the Son of Man. This is the Messianic King. Amen. Another commentator summarizes that, says, uh, this is the Bible exposition commentary, Jesus pictured Satan as a strong man in armor guarding his palace and his goods. We're going to spend some time in this commentary. But Jesus invaded Satan's territory destroyed his armor and weapons, and claimed his spoils. Okay? That's, the that's the picture that's being painted by this analogy. 
I think it will behoove us to look at these references along with a couple more. Um, and then we'll actually come back and finish the commentary. It's not done. Uh, I actually point this one out to you all the time. And, and the reason I do is I think the advent of what's called dispensationalism, uh, I know that's a lot of syllables. You can ask me about it after church, but um, has so caused us to emphasize what Christ will accomplish at His second coming that we've lost sight of the great grand victories that He won at His first coming. right? And a verse like this is a great corrective to those, uh, um, to those errors. Remember, John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, think of the analogy, the ruler, the prince of this world, be cast out. Okay, think of the parallels. Well, what's the now? He says, next verse, when I'm lifted up from the earth. Well, what's he talking about? Well, look at the next verse. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We should have left the cross up. Right? When I'm, I could go illustrate it. I'm afraid I'll be too weak and you'll laugh. Okay. He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he'll do what? Look. Draw all people like the magnet to myself. See that? Not just the Jewish people. When he's crucified, when he's lifted up, he's going to begin claiming the messianic inheritance of the nations. See that when? When's that going to begin? The cross. See, when the ruler of this world is cast out, the one who has them kept in his palace hither to that point, see, when, when he's dispelled and he can no longer hold them under his sway. Let me show you another one. Colossians, they go, this is what the commentator goes to. Colossians 2. We don't have time to read the entire context, but you can go look for yourself. He's speaking in terms of the cross. And he says, in terms of the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Think about the comparison. He disarmed, notice the tense of the verb, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. How? In Him, right? In Christ, in the cross of Christ. When he, when he, look at the preceding verse, when He nailed their sins on the tree, okay? And then John says, uh, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, referring to His first coming, the incarnation, was to destroy the works of the devil. Guys, we need to see that. We need to get that. That has been so lost in much of evangelicalism today. Now, let me add a couple more to this. I, uh, and, and, um, I think if you consider the way Matthew and Mark describe this, this same teaching as our text, then I think Revelation chapter 20 actually implies this same thing. Consider it in light of this. Mark 3.27 but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he does what? Unless he binds the strong man. Why? Because if he doesn't, the strong man's going to prevent it. <laughs> He's going to be warring against him. So what must happen? He's got to be restrained. 
Right? He's got to be bound. He's got to be overtaken, beaten, and subdued. Yeah. Then he can go, you can go into the strong man's house and take out from it what was previously his property. Right? Consider then, just, just for free, Revelation 21 through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed, over, sealed it over for, to what end? Accomplishing what? So that he could no longer deceive the nations. Right? See that? He's, 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 he's going out now and he's, once, the, once the dragon's restrained, see the nations are starting to be gathered in. See, now you be good Bereans, okay? I'm definitely okay if we disagree on that. But I think that, 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 that the stronger man has already done that right there. Amen. That's my opinion. And, and that he continues to plunder. Uh, uh, the, the stronger man has done that and he continues to plunder the possessions of the strong man as the gospel goes out and fill the world and the nations are claimed and brought into the church. Okay, you be good Bereans, okay? We're going to continue on with the commentary. Uh, if you can remember it, we'll review. Uh, he had said Jesus invaded Satan's territory, destroyed his armor and weapons, claimed his spoils. and goes on to say this. This is beautiful. Our Lord has led captivity captive, Ephesians 4.8, and set the prisoners free. Amen. So he's gone in, he's defeated the strong man, and he's, and he's taken the spoils. He's taken those souls out, claimed them for themselves, set them free. Look at these scripture references. We talked about this one last week. Uh, this is in Luke 4 where Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he, and he reads that Isaiah 61 uh, about the anointed servant, the Messiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim, look, freedom, liberty to the captives, yes. right? The recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim to them the year of the Lord's favor, okay? And then two verses later, he says what? He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. See that? And then Ephesians 4.8, they go on to quote, Paul describes Jesus' victory like this. When he ascended on high, what event's that talking about? The ascension, right? He's going to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father as King of kings, as King of God's kingdom. He led a host of captives and he does what kings do after they win a great battle. What? Pours out gifts on his subjects. See, he pours out the Holy Spirit, the gift of all gifts. We talked about that a few weeks ago. See the imagery. It's throughout. That's what I want you to see. And, and, and I think we, we do ourselves a great disservice to devalue and diminish the victory that Christ accomplished in his first coming. Okay? In his first coming. Um, the commentary concludes like this. Though he is permitted limited authority, Satan is a defeated enemy. Amen. The stronger man has begun to plunder his house. 
Satan can no longer keep him, okay, from keeping those or from keeping Jesus from claiming those who are his and bringing them into his kingdom. And I say amen and hallelujah to that. You know why? Because I was in the strong man's palace 20 years ago. <laughs> See, and the stronger man came in, overpowered him, and took me out of his palace. Put me, took me to his own camp, enlisted me in his army, just like he does all Christians, right? And, and, he, and he's left me here to serve in his army. It's not always easy and beautiful and great, but it's a privilege. And one day, I, by, by the grace he's given me, he'll give me an honorable discharge and he'll retire me in his own palace. Amen. You see that? And the same's true for every one of you, right, who've put your faith and trust in Jesus. See? Amen, hallelujah. The stronger man has prevailed, right? And we're all proof of that here. Sorry. Um, look at verse 23. So, so I think that's the imagery, this, this national, political, uh, um, military campaign sort of imagery that, that, uh, from which he speaks in verse 23, Okay? It's a very absolute kind of scenario. Okay, Jesus makes it very clear here. Notice, and we'll read it in a second. There's only two rulers ultimately. There's only two kingdoms ultimately. There's only two armies ultimately. And, and no one is left the Switzerland option. You know what that means? <laughs> right? Military neutrality. No. King Jesus doesn't allow for military neutrality. Okay, He says this. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. See, whoever does not gather with me willfully, voluntarily, scatters. See how emphatic that is? And remember, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to people that assumed that when God's kingdom came, they would be a part of it. All right, think about that, right? But what's the criteria he gives for that, for being a part of that kingdom in verse 23? <laughs> it isn't bloodline, is it? It isn't paternal lineage, is it? It isn't circumcision, is it? Not physical. It's how one responds to Jesus Christ. Amen. Period. Right? And the text is clear. If you're not on his side, you are on the side of his enemy. There's nothing in the middle. There's no middle ground. The king who has the power to invoke that, he does not allow for that. Now, look also at the fate that he promises to those who end up on the other side there in verse 23. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me is going to be scattered. Do you see that? See the ultimatum in that? It's join with King Jesus or you'll be scattered with the enemy forces when they're conquered. See, think of how, what a decisive victory that's connoted by that. The, the victory is going to be so decisive that all order and rank and military discipline, it all goes away. And the people that fought for that side just run. They just scatter. Do you see that? And he says, join with me or you're going to be scattered. See how absolute that is? See how certain that is? Okay, now, flip back over to Matthew chapter 12. 
with this backdrop in mind. And, and I'm not pulling a fast one um, on you. When you get there, just glance verse 30 and see that there in that account, Jesus had said this very same thing leading up to these verses that we're going to read. So there's a connection between them, okay? So um, on, the, on the heels of that ultimatum being given that we just read, Jesus says this, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, why do I bring this up with so little time to spare. <laughs> and I knew it would be the case. I mean, it's you know, obviously that's all planned, or that part's planned out. It's for a couple of main reasons. There's a lot of reasons why, but there are two primary ones. The first is, I think it's a text that we all at some point have, have wrestled with, worried about, um, or at least wondered about really deeply, right? And it's clearly connected here contextually. Um, but in addition to that, so, so pastorally, I thought it wouldn't be wise to skip over it here, even though a little later on, Luke will deal with these same sentiments in his gospel, and we'll cover them again. Um, but additionally, I think it really helps us to understand uh, the ultimatum that Jesus gives there in verse 23. So that's the, the second reason why I thought it'd be it would be worth giving us our time or giving it our time. Now, what does it mean? Well, I think Mark's account is, is going to help us begin to ascertain that of a similar event, if not the same. Excuse me. Look at the way Mark sets it or says it, and then what, uh, and let's read what follows. He says, "But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit." never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this sin is somehow then connected to the false attribution of the power of the spirit, what the spirit was doing to the working of devils. Right? Somehow there's a connection there. We see that um, in what Mark says. Now, I'm going to have to resort to commentaries uh, for two reasons here. One is just the sake of time. The second is, quite frankly, they can do a lot better job than me in explaining this. Okay, so I'll just be straight up with you that. Um, um, but let me say this before I be begin to read them. There are two. I think there are two angles to this. Um, and I, I think while the angles are distinct in their application, I think... In essence, they're the same, okay? You'll see what I mean, okay? I know it sounds like double talk. I don't mean it to be. You'll see what I mean. But I think this first angle to this is often overlooked, okay? Uh, it's, uh, this is from a guy named Peter Bolt. Uh, he says, this needs to be understood within the narrative of Matthew 12. That's going to always be the case, right? Context, context, context. Um, but he says, look, 
we have already seen that the Spirit is poured out upon the servant. Think last week. The Messiah, the anointed one, the man of the Spirit to equip him for his ministry. So, so where, as, in Jesus' humanity, where is his power to do these things coming from? Spirit of God. Okay, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the man of the Spirit. He says, we know that Jesus was identified as the Spirit from his baptism. So what do we have there? The attestation of the Spirit. Right? The, the Spirit identifying Jesus, testifying to who Jesus is. Right? So there's doctrine here and there's practice. Okay? There's power. There's proof. He says, this means that the blasphemy against the Spirit is a failure to recognize that Jesus was the capital S, I put that there, servant, equipped by God, operating within Israel in the nation's last days before the end. Guys, that's often overlooked. We often don't think about it in its redemptive historical place. Right? The Messiah had come. See, the kingdom had arrived. Think of the connections back to verse 23. They're huge to that imperative that Jesus gave in verse 23. Either gather with me in my kingdom or be scattered. Right? Well, here, what we're seeing is the Messiah, the, 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 the man of the Spirit has come, the kingdom has arrived from which they'd long been awaited, and the Spirit of God's been testifying to him ever since the day of his anointing. And all these signs and wonders and other things, Right? And at very best, his own ethnic people had been noncommittal, refused to take sides. At worst, they'd outright spurned and slandered the Spirit's work through him, right? And they'd outright rejected him as their king. Is there a path to forgiveness in that? You see that? There is no path to forgiveness in that. If you follow that path, what can that bring? Eternal damnation. See, that's it. And that's an angle that I, I think is often overlooked. Even though I think this second angle, which is usually more generally applied, is essentially the same thing. Okay? This is the way it's more generally applied. But this is also proper. Okay? This is from a guy named Daniel Doriani, if I'm pronouncing that right. He's new to me. But the commentary series in which he writes is not. Um, he says this, the distinction between blasphemy against Jesus, forgivable, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, unforgivable, rests upon the work of the Holy Spirit. What work? Well, think about it. He convicts of sin. <laughs> he testifies that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior. That's what he's doing in our text, right? Where Jesus is casting out demons by the finger of God. What's he doing? He's testifying that Jesus is Son of God and Savior. Jesus says someone can reject Jesus and God will forgive if he repents and believes. But they make this important distinction. This one we need to take to heart. Sins of ignorance, however severe, are pardonable. You grateful for that? <laughs> I've got truckloads of those. Right? Sins of ignorance, however severe, are pardonable. Pardon, you know. 
And he says, remember, Paul blasphemed and persecuted the church. Right? But God had mercy on him because he sinned in ignorance. Is that not, we don't lie, it makes us uncomfortable. Is that not what Paul said? 1 Timothy 1? He said those very words, right? He says, likewise, many Jews who participated in the crucifixion didn't understand what they were doing and eventually repented. Right? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we see in Acts, numbers, scores of them actually repented. Right? What, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent. <laughs> Put your faith in Jesus. You'll be saved. Be baptized in his name, etc. But then he, then he goes on to say this. And he defines it here uh, very clearly. He says, blasphemy against the Spirit then. Is, and this, these are the distinctions I think that are so important. Is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil despite full knowledge of His work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony of Him. Okay, Think about that. The clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus, despite full knowledge of His work, and in the face of the Spirit's testimony of Him. See? There's something deliberate. There's something willful about this sin. It's more than just mere words spoken. Most of you know the tradition I grew up in. And, and, and this text was used to bring much fear upon you to question that tradition that claimed to be founded on the works of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is more than just mere words that are spoken. Okay, Those words come from somewhere. From where? From the heart. Right? And what's being indicted here is the heart out of which those blasphemous words flow. I think Stephen describes that disposition of heart with piercing clarity when he's being stoned for, this, for his faith in Jesus and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always rebel against the Holy Spirit. Right. See, that's the disposition of heart that leads to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I think those daunting passages in Hebrews 6 and 10... I think they help us to understand this sin as well. Bear with me here. I won't apply it too deeply, but think in essence of the similarities. The author of Hebrews says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Is that, can you claim ignorance if you've been enlightened? And have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Notice that connection have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So you've experienced God's work in the church. The Holy Spirit's work in the church through the, through the Word, through the ordinances, through Christian fellowship, all those things. You've tasted of those things. Okay? You've been exposed to greater light and revelation than even the Jews did in the first century, in a sense the fullness of the canon, etc. And then because of persecution, you've apostatized. See, remember these folks were going back to Judaism. Why? Because Judaism was legal in the Roman Empire. Judaism was protected. Judaism wasn't persecuted. You weren't martyred for being a Jew at this time. Okay, later that would come. Not at this time. Okay, he says, you've, you've sinned against that much light. 
and, and or you've had that much light and then you've turned away, he says it's impossible then to restore them again into repentance. See, that's an eternal sin. Since they crucify once again the Son of God, God <clears throat> excuse me, to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Does that seem like sincere, misguided sin? No, that's willful. See that? That's willfully profaning Christ. That's knowing what you're doing. That's knowing what the truth is. That's, that's knowing that this is real. And turning away. You see that outright real apostasy. Okay, Hebrews 10. Notice the similarities okay, to what we just read in Matthew 12, 31-32. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And again, if the overall context here is apostasy, right? You turn away. You know this is true. It's been testified to. You turn away. You turn back to Judaism. What sacrifice of sins remains for you there? No. Nowhere. Where does that path lead? Eternal damnation. Right? There's no hope in that in this age or in the age to come. Now watch what he goes on. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, revelation from God, but not near the light that, that we have now in the New Testament canon. And they particularly who were experiencing signs and wonders and gifts, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, apostolic manifestations of the Spirit's power then, right? Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without evidence, without, sorry, without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's noticed the language of intentionality? This is an accident here. This isn't an accident here. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. You see that? Who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. A lot of debate about what that means. I'm not going into it. But look... <laughs> And has outraged whom? Capital S. Translators pointing something out to you here. The Spirit of grace. Guys, that's not a sin of ignorance, is it? That's, that's a sin of informed intentionality. You see that? And it's deadly serious. But, I won't leave you in despair. Okay? And I don't think it's proper to. I'm not just doing that so you'll like me more. Like, I don't think it's proper to leave you in despair here, okay? Jesus said this, John 6, 37. Okay. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay. And he says, whoever does come to me in repentance and faith, we would infer, I will never cast out. Now, how do we harmonize those two? <laughs> okay, I think this commentary does a good job of it, okay? Explaining these things. And I'm going to give him the final word, okay? I hope. It was my plan to. <laughs> Forgive me if I don't. This is again from uh, that Daniel Doriani. 
says the concept of the unpardonable sin is fearful. Yet, it contains a seed of hope. Don't overlook that. He says it teaches us that every other sin, however terrible, can be forgiven. Are we grateful for that? Is that in itself an astounding statement? Is it astounding for Jesus to say, you can blaspheme me and I'll still forgive you? Is it astounding that Paul was a blasphemer of Christ? A persecutor of his church for which he bled and died what's most sacred to him on the earth? And he forgave Paul and appointed him to apostleship in his church? Is that astounding? Is there great comfort in that? I mean, it ought to be. We ought to sing hallelujahs for that. It says, it, it teaches us that every other sin, however terrible, can be forgiven. And he says this. I think this is so important. It's cliche, but it's good cliche. Anyone who's worried about this sin is far short of it. Okay? This isn't Bible, guys, but I think he's spot on. Let me read it again. Anyone who's worried about this sin is far short of it. Okay? If you read this passages and fear and foreboding comes up in your soul and, and like you're really worried, praise God. <laughs> okay? <laughs> he says, indeed, concern about the unpardonable sin may be a token of the Spirit's working in the heart. Right. He goes on to say this. Those who are guilty of the sin are so settled in their rejection of the faith that this verse will not alarm them. I mean, I think he's spot on. Yes. Right? Think about, think about the people in the store. I mean, think about the scribes and Pharisees to which Jesus gave this warning. Did it seem like it instilled fear and foreboding in them? They continued right on with the rejection. See, he's not speaking this to Christians. Okay, He's not saying to a Christian, be careful that you don't, you know, use the, 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 the neuter pronoun for the Holy Spirit instead of the first person pronoun. I can't think of the masculine pronoun, sorry. In other words, call the Holy Spirit an it, like people tend to do, right? Impersonal. That's improper, but we do it by accident. He's not saying, oh, if you do that, you're, you're damned for hell. Guys, that's not the point of this warning, okay? He said the, 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 the warning is for those who are informed by the Spirit of God, to whom the Spirit of God has, or, uh, yeah, to whom the Spirit of God has testified to the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done, the validity of the cross and the resurrection, etc., the validity of the gospel, and they then have spurned that revelation and turned away and spoken evil of the testimony that the Spirit has borne regarding Christ. And then Doriani finishes with this. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, we can still find mercy if we repent and believe. Guys, think about this. You may say, well, that, that contradicts. Guys, if you're repenting and believing, are you blaspheming the Spirit? <laughs> okay, so he's saying, whoever we are, if, if, if we repent and put our faith in Christ, based on the evidence 
for Christ that the Spirit has borne in the Word of God and testified to us internally. He says if we respond to that with repentance and faith, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and all who come to me I will never cast out. You see that? All right. Well, let's, let's pray, and we'll ask for grace to do that. Do we need that? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to not dismiss any warning that you give. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we pray yet pour out your spirit upon us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to not spurn the work that you would do in us by your spirit. Help us to not reject the truth that you would testify to, uh, testify to by your spirit. Lord, we need grace and power outside of ourselves. We ask you for it. Help us to repent. Help us to believe, to trust. We look to you. We thank you that you've overcome the strong man. We thank you that you've conquered those that held us in prison because of our sin. We thank you that you've delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of light. How great is your grace. How awesome is your power. Forgive us now, please. Help us to cling to Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. All right, we'll stand together and sing page 59. Steve.